0: Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law. The You Thought the Election Was Bad, but Wait for the Transition podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 25th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, incapable of being on a Twill without. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. So, this week on Twill, Frank, uh, we're pleased to welcome Russell Korobkin, Vice Dean and the Richard C. Maxwell Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches contracts, negotiation, and healthcare law. He's a prolific scholar, but I think for uh, Twill listeners, his work on uh, behavioral uh, law and economics, uh, as well as some of his stem cell work, will be of particular interest. Big welcome to the pod, Russell.
1: Uh, Nick, thank you for having me. Frank, thank you for having me. This is great fun. Well, we've got a couple of things to get off our chests,
0: right, Frank, before we uh, get rolling with uh, Russell's interesting work. Um, I wanted to start with Oregon. Uh, Oregon's approach to Medicaid expansion, which really predates um, the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, was via a lottery, uh, which uh, for social scientists... uh, miraculously created a rare randomized trial opportunity regarding utilization of health services. As we all know, one of the theories behind the ACA's expanded coverage, exchange policies, uh, Medicare-Medicaid expansion, was that emergency department utilization would decline, and that sort of decline in generally unreimbursed care would save hospitals money, which they would then be able to uh, shift to some of their newer costs. A year ago, we received something of a shock when initial research from the Oregon cohort suggested that ED use actually increased after the patients received uh, Medicaid. Now, with another year of data results uh, just published in the New England Journal, we seem to have a continuation of the same story. It's hard to figure out what the reasons for this are. Was it a flawed policy from the beginning that um, uh, ED use would go down? Is it that this group has such needs that they're both increasing PCP and um, uh, ED uh, pools of service? Uh, is it, as was speculated in the article itself, that PCPs maybe are recommending ED visits? Or is it that uh, continuing uh, sad tale of Medicaid that we have a chronic shortage of uh, PCPs are willing to service those co- this cohort. Um, it's a fascinating piece of research, and I think the repercussions are going to uh, continue for a while, Frank.
2: Yes, and I recall uh, a very interesting series in Slate a few years ago that talked about uh, overutilization of ERs and the pr- overcrowding, boarding of patients, etc. And One of the ideas offered there was that essentially people found health services were too fragmented. Um, so to to go back to a, a book that I contributed to once uh, on fragmentation in American healthcare, uh, it seemed to a lot of folks that if they had to go to a doctor and then go for tests and then go for other sort of blood work and other things like that, that was such a huge hassle when you had um, same day, same place service in the ER. So I think that might also be sort of a cri de for uh, more integrative uh, services in healthcare. Um my uh, I have a couple of lightning round items my first one just be brief which is that there was a long article in Mother Jones on why your drug prescriptions cost so much and it is interesting in many levels, uh, but of most interest to our show listeners is it quoted uh, from a study by a past show guest Amit Sarpatwari, a study of Harvard Harvard Medical School researchers that cited the size of Part D and lack of government negotiating clout as key reasons for why Americans pay the highest drug prices. So I will link to that. It's a a good article sort of giving an overview of the these
0: issues next for me wellness plans uh wellness plans have often come up for critique on the pod uh recall episode 55 and uh wendy mariner's initial take on the final rule uh frank some of kristen madison's work that we've been lucky enough to hear um back in in the summer uh, forthcoming work from jessica roberts jessica mantel uh well this week uh, aarp filed suit against eeoc over those May 2016 final rules. Um, it looks like, uh, ARP are arguing that the wellness programs approved by the agency violate anti-discrimination laws. Uh, I assume they're talking about ADA and GINA um, that were designed to protect employee information, uh, plus a little bit presumably of HIPAA uh, with ACA modifications. Uh, the suit also argues that the approved wellness plans are not voluntary. Uh, and essentially, I think the suit takes up EEOC's own argument in the Honeywell case that the agency seemed to flip-flop on when they issued the final regulation. So, faithful listeners, this one is definitely one to watch. Completely agreed. And I think that
2: this is a really interesting step for the AARP to take um, in terms of an awareness of some of the interests of plan members who might be disproportionately hit by some of the requirements of the programs. My last item for today on the lightning round is a study on the use of medical scribes. And this is a study from the journal of the American Board of Family Medicine, uh, just a systematic overview, meta-study of the use of scribes because we've talked in prior programs about doctors being sort of overwhelmed by their duties in terms of keeping track of the data and health data in electronic medical records. Um, The study is overall affirmative as to the use of scribes in terms of increasing efficiency and improving uh, uh, the lives of physicians trying to stop burnout. Um, I only bring it up because I think it's such an interesting story of one step, two step Forward one step back, which is that really to get to a learning healthcare system or one where we have more value based care based on data, we may well need to spend more at first to gather the data properly um, rather than just assuming that data exhaust is going to solve our problems.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, we could actually really sort of uh, count the next part of our discussion as a part of the lightning round uh, because, (laughs) Russell, you join us today as headlines blare that the average increase of ACA. Policies will be 22% next year. Now, of course, Twill is known for being fair and balanced, and so we should note the obvious that these are uh, exchange policies, not employer group coverages, a point apparently lost on candidate Trump today. Um, (laughs) Secondly, that the early years were always going to be a bit spiky, weren't they, before the risk pools settled? And also, that exchange premiums will be offset by subsidies. about 80 percent of customers. Nevertheless, the premise behind your relative value health insurance article, uh, Russell, that healthcare costs are continuing to rise and that novel approaches are needed, um, seems pretty unshakable at the moment.
1: Well, I, I think that's right, Nick. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, despite its name, I think was a tremendous piece of legislation to improve access to care. We've, we've seen the number of uninsured Americans has declined quite substantially, but it doesn't really have a lot in it that you would think is going to uh, reduce or, or necessarily even control the cost of healthcare over a long period of time. And of course, the last couple of years, we saw very low rates of price increases in the exchanges, which was a, a nice surprise. But uh, the fact that that looks like it's being offset this year, I don't think is, um, it, it is really all that surprising of a result.
0: When I read your uh, your piece, there are a couple of areas that sort of in the introduction in the in setting the stage that really did strike me as incredibly useful and it, it would be great I think for our listeners if you could sort of ease us into the discussion by talking a little bit more about those. First of all, I thought your take on moral hazard was really interesting. We tend, or idiots like me anyway, tend to talk about moral hazard as sort of a fixed thing. But I thought your article really uh, discussed how the scope of the moral hazard issue is actually increasing.
1: Right. Well, so, you know, one of the fundamental problems that we face with, with the cost of healthcare is that not even the top one percent of the of the population in terms of income can can actually afford to pay what it costs if you contract a serious illness, right? So we have to have an insurance system where people can uh, pay in uh, based on their expected risk and then have the cost covered uh, for them if they actually need the insurance. Really no way around that except for a a handful of Bill Gates's and Warren Buffett's in the population. But the problem, uh, the moral hazard problem is that once you have insurance, then you have an incentive to use all the health care that could conceivably help you, uh, no matter what the relative cost is compared to the relative benefit. So this is a, you know, the, the laws of economics just suggest that this is a situation that means that, w- that we're almost certainly going to pay more of our national income for health care than we might choose to in a, in a perfect world. And I think a lot of health policy is about, or a lot of ideas, Ideas about health policy in the current environment is about how we can minimize that problem I think we'll, we'll never we'll never investigate it but um, the more people that have health insurance the more people you cover under the Affordable Care Act then the more people who are going to be in this situation of, of having insurance so if they can g- if there's some care that will in, uh, improve their health or at least, or even possibly improve their health even a little bit uh, those people are then insensitive to the Costs uh, associated with that care, and that's why it's not, in fact, something we were talking to me about before. It's not a surprise at all to me to find that uh, in Oregon, people that have now have Medicaid coverage are using the ER more um, because now they have the uh, now they have the right to uh, to use that care. Not every uh, uh, uninsured person knows about the uh, Mtala statute that requires hospitals to emergency rooms to treat them, even if they have. No insurance. People that have insurance now uh, know that they can go to the hospital and they can get uh, very expensive care. And in, in many cases, of course, it's well justified, right? The care saves their lives, uh, even if it's expensive, and that's care we want people to get. But people also have the incentive to use care that has more, uh, that has smaller benefits, without any consideration of what it actually costs.
0: And of course, before the Affordable Care Act was passed, the sort of the the previous sort of attempt. Uh, to uh, to push back on costs here was uh, consumer directed healthcare, and I wondered as I started to read your article whether you were going to, because you were taking a, a market based approach or somewhat of a market based approach, you were going to take us that down that road. But I, I quickly stumbled across an amazing uh, sentence. I thought, "Quote that CDHC assumes a heroically implausible level of decision making ability on the part of patients faced with treatment choices at the time of illness." Uh, so I think. You you, you you certainly planted a uh, a big flag there,
1: right? So I think consumer directed healthcare is just is an idea that uh, uh, is wonderful theory, but in terms of practice is just woefully uh, inadequate. The, the The basic idea of consumer directed healthcare is that if we make people pay more of the costs of care, uh, then they're going to be able to uh, be more cost conscious and are going to make, be able to balance the cost of care against the benefits of care. And there are um, a number of problems with this in the real world, uh, of course. So, so, I mean, one problem, of course, is that it's impossible to find out the cost of almost any care that your doctor might recommend uh, giving you. But let's assume away that problem. Let's assume that the medical industry would develop actually priceless. So you could, a patient could actually see what things are going to cost. And let's say we had very high copayments. So the patients themselves were going to actually have... To choose whether to pay money for certain treatments or not pay money for certain treatments, but then you have this 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 point that um, that you raised from from one of my articles on this subject about uh, heroic expectations that um, uh, average citizens are going to be able to make these kind of trade-offs uh, between the cost of a procedure and the potential benefits of a procedure in any kind of way that is um, uh, that is a reasonable uh, facsimile of their sort of internal preferences for spending their money on medical care versus spending their money on other things. It's just, uh, even for experts, it's uh, in the very well-educated, it's a very, very difficult exercise to consider the mortality and morbidity uh, uh, consequences of particular treatment regimens for different diseases. And then you have to discount those by the probabilities that they'll be successful or unsuccessful. Uh, And then you have to somehow sort of forecast as to uh, how you're going to feel if your health improves in a certain way and what's your life going to look like if your health improves in a certain way versus what your uh, life is going to look like if it doesn't. And then you're supposed to somehow uh, uh, determine whether those risk-adjusted expected benefits of a certain treatment are worth the $12,000 cost of that treatment or not. This is... uh, this is just ludicrous to think that most people are going to be able to make these decisions in a rational way. And then add to that the fact that because everybody other than Bill Gates and Warren Buffett needs to have insurance, uh, we're all going to hit our deductible sooner or later if we have a serious ill, right? If you or I are lucky that we're healthy all year, all we do, let's say, is maybe go to the doctor once for a checkup. Uh, maybe another time we, uh, we, we have an earache and we get an antibiotic and we take that and then we feel better. If those are all of our medical expenses for the year, then you could imagine a very high deductible where insurance wouldn't cover any of that. And we'd have to decide, is it worth it to pay for the antibiotic and the doctor visit? Or would we rather suffer with the ear infection? We can make that decision. But that's not where most of the cost in the healthcare system goes. Most of the cost in the system are spent on people that are extremely ill uh, in any given year. And almost all of those people quickly exceed their deductible even if they have high deductible health insurance. So at that point, then they no longer have any personal um. Uh, incentive to make these trade-offs that that supporters of consumer-directed healthcare uh, want them to make, even if they did have the uh, ability to to be these super-rational computer-like processors of, of cost versus value.
2: Yes, I think that is a terrific rundown of some of the real difficulties that people face in terms of trying to choose um, intervention by intervention. It reminds me of this good discussion in the uh, Hall Bobinski and Or. Licker book on healthcare, finance, the textbook, where I think they quote someone as saying that uh, given a moderately complex uh, account of the types of conditions people could have and a full account of the types of interventions that could... uh, um, be deployed to help them, that sometimes uh, chronic conditions could have up to you know, 10 billion choices of uh, potential outcomes or, or ways of dealing with uh, issues. And and I think that this is a really sobering type of thought in terms of trying to uh, consider from an individual perspective um, how to ideally respond to economic incentives uh, case by case the other thing i want to but i think sort of stepping back from that um is I was hoping before we get into the um, nuts and bolts of your proposal, which I think is really fascinating and really anticipates a lot of objections in a very interesting way, I want to think uh, for us to think a little bit about the macroeconomic perspective, which is part of the um, background in the article, where you mentioned a a CBO study from twenty twelve that states that the percent of uh, GDP taken up by healthcare could rise to twenty five percent by twenty thirty seven, and you know at the bottom of page four eighteen. uh, this article, that the opportunity cost of allocating an ever larger percentage of national wealth to medical care um, at some point will exceed the benefits of doing so. Do you think we have a good sense of how to know when that point has been reached? I think you mentioned in the article, maybe the marginal cost already exceeds the marginal benefit. Um, is there a good tool for that, or is it inevitably sort of a comparative inquiry of how different countries decide how much of GDP to spend on on healthcare?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any great way to determine where that point is, because it depends on a lot of uh, individual value choices. You know, I suppose I suppose in theory, the way you would do it is you would sort of towed up the value choices of each person in the in the society or in the country um, and, you know, take an average of those to find out what the right amount is to, to spend on health care. One thing that I uh, that I notice in the discussions, though, of, for example, premiums in the um, health exchanges going up there, if you read stories about these kind of things in the newspaper, you, for example, I read one where it said that it talked about an individual person who uh, the family uh, family income was $60,000, or, or maybe it was an individual's, I don't know. But the, the income was $60,000. And it said that this person would have to pay tw- $10,000 uh, annually in premiums just to get health insurance, and the person only makes $60,000. Well, that's about the rate of our national wealth that we spend on health insurance. So the average, you know, a- the uh, per capita GDP is about about $53,000 in the United States. Uh, so we, we create about $53,000 of wealth per year per person. And we spend about $9,500 per person on medical care. Um, so to a lot of people, I think that, that that seems like it's too much, right? There are lots of other things that we want to buy with our money. Uh, you know, we want to have comfortable homes, good food, uh, you know, a uh, 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 good education for our children, you know, you can, you can name the list of goods that we want to spend our money on. And, and these uh, stories I, uh, that I read in the newspaper about the high cost of insurance seem to indicate that people think that what we spend on healthcare care is, is too much. Uh, maybe it's not, though, of course. You know, we're a rich country. So uh, if we spend a lot of our marginal income on healthcare and that makes our lives uh, a little bit longer or, uh, or, or m- better and more enjoyable while we're alive, I, I don't have a position that we're necessarily spending too much. But I think the key is, is that we want to make decisions. I think we can all agree that we want to decide on the amount amount we spend of our national wealth on medical care in a thoughtful, rational way where we where we spend Money up to the point where we would rather spend the marginal dollars on something else that makes our lives uh, better or or safer or more comfortable.
2: I think that is an excellent point of transition to get into the details of your proposal to uh, explain what the relative value health insurance, what that would entail uh, for individuals.
1: You know, the underlying premise is that we want to put in place structures that allow individuals to determine the trade-offs they want to make between how much of their income they want to spend on medical care compared to how much of their income they want to spend on other goods and services. But we don't ask them to make that decision in the context that we talked about before, when I'm sick and a doctor presents all these complicated choices, because that is not a situation where people are going to be able to make good decisions. So my proposal is to try to facilitate the making of those decisions earlier in the process when you buy health insurance instead of at the time when you become sick. So uh, the consumer-directed healthcare movement wants, wants you to, as an individual, to ha- be able to, to try to balance the costs and the benefits of treatments, medical treatments when you get sick. I want you to balance the costs and the benefits before you get sick, at the time you're making a decision about purchasing health care uh, or health insurance. And the way I would like to do that is I would like like to facilitate an insurance system where people can choose between uh, insurance options that provide what I call deeper levels of care, sort of greater and greater levels of treatment for uh, interventions that have uh, less and less expected value for the intervention. And they can trade that off against uh, 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 saving money by purchasing insurance that costs less. So the, 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 to simplify the idea a little bit, uh, you would go to your health insurance company instead of just offering you essentially one class of health insurance, which is really what we have now. We vary the deductible amount, and we call those things in the in the exchanges we label them as bronze, silver, and gold uh, insurance. But but those are not different. Le- those are not different qualities of the insurance you get. Those are just different levels of deductibles that you have to pay if you if you get sick. You Essentially, In any of those plans, and it's also true for virtually uh, all employer-provided plans, uh, you basically get a single depth of coverage. That is, whatever's covered, whatever treatments are covered under one plan are essentially covered under virtually every plan that's offered in the United States. You can't decide to buy insurance that doesn't cover quite as many things and save money versus uh, buying insurance that will cover more treatments uh, um, and cost more money. And that's the that's the type of insurance system I would like to see with more choice about depth of coverage uh, versus cost of coverage. So people that want to spend less money on health insurance can buy a health insurance policy that will cover them for treatments that have the highest value. But don't cover them for treatments that have relatively less potential value. And um, other people can make different kinds of trade offs and pay more money for insurance that will cover them for a, a greater range of
0: treatments. Russell, when your article first started circulating, um, Austin Fract over at Incidental Economist uh, commented on your proposal um, favorably and linked it to some of Mark Pauly's work and actually sort of suggested implementation using those very uh, exchange metaphors, the metallic metaphors, the metallic rankings. So saying, you know, bronze would be shallow, silver would add in treatments the large majority of physicians would find useful, gold would add expensive cancer treatments that show some positive outcomes, and then with platinum you would get coverage even for experimental or improvement treatments. Is that roughly what you have? in mind, or is that distorting your, your model?
1: No, I think that that is, that is definitely roughly what I have in mind. I mean, of course, it it's simplifies slightly, but it's pretty much on target. So wh- what I would like to do is to, is to realize, is to sort of force people to realize that when you go to the, you have something, some kind of illness, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor considers whether to recommend various kinds of treatment options, those are not, um, they don't all have the same amount of value. Uh, one treatment uh, option might, for example, you know, let's say a treatment for um, form of cancer that is um, particularly bad, and the treatment is extremely expensive, but it only has a very small likelihood of extending your life. And even in the best case circumstance, it won't extend your life very long. In our current system, if you were to look at the fine print of your health insurance policy, you would find that you're entitled to all medically necessary care. And the way this is almost always interpreted is if this very expensive cancer treatment has some chance of having some benefit for you, then it's going to be covered. There, there are certain extreme examples where uh, there might be some pushback, but but generally speaking, uh, you're going to be covered for this uh, benefit. And let's just say, to make an extreme example, let's say it's going to cost a million dollars, and uh, the best you can hope for is that will. This is a this is a very this is a, um, a lethal form of cancer. And you're going uh, at the very best you can hope for is that it will extend your lifespan for six months. And the chances of even doing that are not all that good. Um, You'll probably be able to get this treatment under your current insurance policy. And of course, you would want it, right? Who wouldn't want it in that situation? But the consequence of that is that we're all paying a lot more money for our health insurance up front, because treatments like this are going to be covered. And so in my situation, right if you if you got the uh, if you purchased the gold policy or the platinum policy then this would be covered uh, and uh, you would get this treatment and you would be paying a lot of money up front for your health insurance if you wanted to save money on health insurance and spend it for something else that's valuable you know sending your kids to college for example uh, you could buy a you could buy the bronze insurance policy that would cost you a lot less money but in this situation your insurance company would say, um, i sorry, this is not covered under the bronze policy. Uh, you, um, you know, so uh, a lot of people think of this as being heartless, right? How can you say to somebody that has cancer and is dying that a treatment that might expend their life uh, is not covered? Shouldn't that be covered? And, uh, you know, the harsh reality is that medical care like money doesn't grow on trees, right? Somebody has to pay this very high cost of, of care for this, you know, hypothetical. Um, uh, uh, hypothetical treatment that has a positive value but it's a small positive value compared to cost and that um, many or most of us right I think I would be in this count myself in this uh, population I would rather pay less for my health insurance and know that in this kind of situation I'm not going to be able to I'm not going to be given every treatment that might have some possible benefit right so if I buy the bronze policy and I save a lot of money i I'm not getting that. But what I am going to get is I'm going to get all of the treatments that have a uh, much more positive cost benefit uh, profile, right? So, um, you know, David Cutler uh, wrote uh, several years ago that um, the standard regimen for treating um, uh, uh, cardiac uh, problems um, costs about uh, $30,000 and on average extends life for four and a half years. So, boy, that's a cost effective treatment right? And so with my bronze policy, I'm gonna, I get that, I qualify for that, but I don't qualify for this uh, hypothetical uh, cancer treatment that only would extend my life for a short period of time.
2: Around the world, uh, in groups like the National Institutes for uh, Clinical Excellence in, uh, in Britain and others are you know, trying to do this very difficult cost-benefit analysis that I think could be really informative, especially at those extreme cases that you brought up in terms of you know the new drug that only extends life by, say, a month um, with potential uh, side effects. Um, one thing I was wondering, though, is you, you opened the article comparing these two drugs, Cystagon and Prosisbe, and uh, sorry if I mispronounced these, and the basic, the bottom line of the distinction was that the new drug, um, costs much more per year. I guess like $200,000 more per year. And it's both of them are, are life saving, but it does not cause, um, bad breath, body odor, nausea, and abdominal problems and only has to be taken like twice a day. Um, I certainly understand that there are very well established uh, routes in cost benefit analysis that you know people like Matt Adler and others have written about in terms of the valuation of human life. Are there uh, as well-established methods of, say, valuing not having nausea, not having abdominal problems as a result of um, getting the more expensive drug?
1: How a a proposal like mine would have to be operationalized is you would have to determine for the various treatments that are under consideration or, or, you know, treatment regimens or a particular drug or a particular medical procedure. You have to determine on one hand the cost, and then on the other hand, you'd have to determine Uh, what uh, social scientists call uh, uh, the quality adjusted life years that that treatment would give you. And so uh, then you would say for based on what level of insurance policy you purchase, um, uh, that would determine whether you are eligible for a treatment that would have a certain cost per quality adjusted life year profile. Okay, so so let me just give you a a sort of one one example of this is that that I talk about in, in another one of my, my pieces on sort of related to this proposal is that um, uh, one, one uh, uh, cost-effectiveness research project investigated a surgery for a uh, a certain kind of back condition, a, a lumbar discectomy, uh, it's called. And uh, reached the conclusion that for a person under 65, on average, uh, the cost per quality adjusted life year of this surgery was 69 thousand dollars. So uh, now I, where and then so in my proposal, whether you would be eligible for this treatment if you had the uh, if you had the back problem in question, right, you you have a recurring back pain, you go to the doctor, the doctor says, OK, well, one thing we can do is medical management. Another thing we can do is surgery. Um, and and the, the surgery uh, is going to provide on average uh, one uh, one additional quality adjusted life year per 69 thousand dollars cost and so then it would depend if you have the the uh bronze policy uh you might not qualify for this at that at that rate of cost per quality if you have the the platinum policy you definitely would uh you know this is one where depend maybe the silver policy covers this maybe it doesn't it's kind of in the middle right the 69 thousand dollars a year is not uh for one extra year of quality adjusted life uh is not um uh, uh obscenely expensive it's also not dirt cheap it's somewhere in the middle and so this is where different gradations in, in uh policy uh, po- uh, insurance policies would give you the choice to pay more and have more things covered or to pay less and have fewer things covered uh now that's a lot of background so frank your question i what, what the way i interpret your question is well who determines that the reduced back pain that one will have if they have the sur- if they have the surgery is uh worth x amount x number of quality adjusted life years right who puts the value on um uh it's hard enough to put the value on what is it worth to live for one more year what's that worth uh that's a hard question an even harder question is what's it worth to live uh no extra time your lifespan is not affected at all but you live with a reduced amount of back pain like how do you who places a value on that and um the the uh you know the 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 Real answer to your question is well, that's a matter of dispute, right? We don't have uh, a metric that everyone agrees upon for figuring out exactly how much value these different things have. Uh, but on the other hand, this type of analysis is done all the time uh, by in all different areas of research, not just in in healthcare research, but in environmental uh, policy research, and you know any any area where you're trying to compare uh, cost versus benefit of various regulations or technologies or uh, interventions uses this concept of quality adjusted life years. And and it's not, it's not perfect, right? It's going to rely on, on somebody's methodology of how do you value this, you ask, you get a bunch of people uh, together, different people, and you ask them how much certain things are worth to them. And then you average and then you infer. And it's, uh, it's real messy. But social scientists do this kind of analysis all the time, because it's quite simply a lot better than nothing.
0: You talk in the I think the core part of the article about comparative effectiveness and cost effectiveness. And in particular, you make reference to the Affordable Care Act's approaches, sort of encouraging this. But I think I have a, a more skeptical approach to or, or judgment on the ACA's comparative effectiveness. Um, First, I think PCORI has generally failed to find its place and has kind of wandered off aimlessly into sort of the patient representation weed. And second, um, I think it's been horribly hamstrung. And maybe this explains the first. It's been horribly hamstrung by having primary tools such as qualities taken away from its hands by the very wording of the ACA. And Nick Pagley, if you're listening, I know you disagree with that. I accept that maybe I'm picking at some trees here when you want to talk about the forest, but Frank Ray's the UK's NICE agency. And I guess what my question is what's the macro benefit of having individuals making these comparative or cost effectiveness based choices, choices that likely will be regressive because of differences in assets? What's the macro benefit of having individuals making these choices through sort of market like? Uh, models, rather than having a single agency making a decision for all.
1: That's a great. That's a great question. And and it, it is the primary difference between my proposal and how the system works in the UK uh, uh, with the National Institute of Cost Effectiveness, as, as you've suggested, right? Uh, that agency determines what are the quality adjusted life years for this particular new drug, let's say, and then based on the answer to that question, it's either covered for everybody or not covered for everybody right and so what are the so my my uh proposal uh uses the same kind of cost benefit analysis that they use in the uk but allows each individual patient or actually i shouldn't call them patients they make the decision when they make the decisions they're insurance customers they're not patients at that point it allows each individual uh, customer in the insurance market to make that trade-off for himself or herself what's the benefit of that um, of that difference so there are two i think one is um uh you know, two values that are quite important, um, autonomy and economic efficiency, right? So uh, as to the latter, uh, by letting different individuals are going to have different sets of preferences about uh, how they feel about having more money today to spend on goods and services and other things that are going to make their lives pleasant and worth living, uh, versus having the extra deep coverage if you become ill. And, you uh, and care. Remember, in all of these plans, you're going to be entitled to types of care that are very cost effective. It's just a question of the, the expensive stuff with relatively uh, uh, reduced uh, value is, is what's really at issue here, if you're going to be covered for that. People have different uh, sets of preferences, right? So I believe that uh, so if we let people exercise their individual preferences, we're going to have a better match between what people spend their money on and the value that they get for that money. Than if we have the government just make a one-size-fits-all decision for the entire population. Now, above and beyond that, uh, the fact that sort of from an economic perspective, you increase social welfare with my proposal versus a one-size-fits-all. Uh, you also um, uh, uh, support the you know the, the the value of individual choice and autonomy. Uh, people can have some say in what kind of health insurance they're getting. In in the UK, uh, everyone gets health insurance. That's great. But uh, the level of benefits that you get, you have no say over. So it's a one size fits all. So those are the advantages of my, of my proposal. The, you know, there, there are disadvantages, of course. It's harder to administrate. Uh, it's more complicated. Uh, I'm trying to be somewhere in what I consider to be the sweet spot between having no freedom of choice, one size fits all like England, and then a situation that gives you, in theoretical terms, the most economic effect efficiency, uh, that's the consumer-directed healthcare approach. Like, imagine we made it, people pay out of pocket for everything. Then if you assume uh, people are these uh, uh, super rational maximizers, computer-like maximizers of their personal welfare, then you maximize economic efficiency in that system. But it's just not a plausible model of how people behave. In my approach, I'm trying to, 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 to find that middle ground by saying we help people to to make some trade-offs to express their own personal values, but we make the decision uh, relative, we simplify the decision-making process. We basically give people two things. We give them the price of different insurance options, and then we give them the level of coverage that they're going to get. So if, for example, in my work I talk about a scale of one through ten for the representing the depth of coverage. But in the example you gave me, you know, instead of having one through ten, we could have one, we could have five categories. And you can call them platinum, gold, silver, bronze, lead, you know, whatever you want to call them. Same idea. So, um, you know, there are costs and benefits on both sides. I'm trying to find a middle ground uh, in the, in the, uh, the realm of possible ways of doing
2: this. I just have one last question, which is sort of twofold. And uh, it relates to, I think, Nick's uh, concern about the, uh, how to structure this in terms of, you know, the, our sense of overall income and wealth inequalities in the U.S., One is that in terms of an interaction of this plan with the ACA, do you have any worry that uh, people might game the system to the extent that they might buy cheaper insurance um, while they're in employer-sponsored plans? But let's say if they get very sick, they may quit their job and then go to any Medicaid plan that would cover more than, say, the cheapest employer plan? Or I suppose the solution might be to make the Medicaid plan uh, to benchmark it at the worst uh, employer plan. Um, The second question is, I wonder if there's any room in your proposal to integrate as a friendly amendment uh, some of Chris Robertson's recent work proposing uh, sliding scale uh, copayment and cost sharing with respect to people's income. Because I I really like some of Robertson's work where he says, um, I worry about, say, a deductible meaning something far different to, say, the 70% of Americans that have less than X amount of savings. Uh, and meaning something completely different to folks who are, say, in the top ten percent of wealth in the U.S., which I think is now at about a million dollars per household. Um, is there a sense that 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 might be a friendly amendment to the program?
1: So, great, great question. So, on, on that second point, yeah, I think that. Um, so, those ideas by Robertson, I think, are are um, they're not uh, they're not inconsistent with my ideas. it's kind of a um, a set of ideas that I would say are orthogonal to my ideas that. Um, Within my uh, plan, right, where you would buy uh, the high, the deep level of coverage, or the or the shallow level of coverage, and that would sort of represent the trade-off that you want to make between spending your limited amount of income, and you know, just about every one of us is limited at some, some, to some degree, right? You spend your limited amount of income, you got to balance that between uh, medical care and other goods and services. So that's what my approach is trying to facilitate, making that. Um, Trade off at the meta level in um, uh, uh, you know the best possible way. Then <clears throat> then there's the question of well within these plans, right? Um, then when you actually become ill and you go to the doctor, right? What what kind of co payments, if any, uh, would you have to pay, right? And so so then you have kind of a de- then you then you're dealing with a more micro level problem at that point that you don't want. Um, even if you even let's say you've purchased the uh, platinum level plan because you want to know, for example, if you get cancer and you're dying, that you will get anything that might possibly help, right? Even if the chances of it helping you are pretty low, you feel very strongly that you would want that. So you buy the most expensive plan that you can get. Um, Then you still have the problem where you go to the the doctor for like a more uh, common uh, garden variety illness, right? Let's say you have the the example I gave before. You have an ear infection, right? And, um, And the doctor prescribes an antibiotic that's still, uh, on patent. And so, um, it's not, uh, real cheap. Uh, let's say that it's going to cost a hundred dollars for your antibiotic prescription. So now when we talk about co-payments and deductibles, now what we want in this case is it's kind of a different incentive problem. So now we want you to, if you, if you're, uh, <laughs> um, let's say you're, you're, your, your, ear infection is, uh, not bothering you that much. And your doctor says it'll probably clear up on its own in a couple of days. Anyway, um, So maybe it's not worth $100 to uh, get this medicine. Um, uh, We, you know, from a social welfare perspective, we want you to not use the medicine. Whereas on the other hand, if it's very painful and it's going to take perhaps a long time to clear up on its own, then from a social welfare perspective, we would want you to take the medicine. And so adjusting your copayment and deductible framework is going to provide, you know, potentially uh, reasonable incentives on that. That score, and uh, you know Chris Robertson's very good point is that if we're trying to incentivize people to make certain kinds of trade-offs, we uh, the success of that is going to depend on uh, what their wealth profile looks like. That a uh, a twenty-five dollar deductible is going to uh, look like one thing to uh, somebody who earns a salary of two hundred thousand dollars a year. It's going to look like something quite different to somebody who only earns fifteen thousand dollars a year. So um. So so the, that's a long answer to your uh, question. To say to say yes, I think there are, these proposals can potentially be uh, mixed and matched. Um, the other question that you that uh, you asked Frank is is what about the problem of people gaming the system? Of uh, I think we can I can generalize your question a little bit. It doesn't even have to be shifting between an employer plan and an exchange plan. Let's just say I could. What's to stop me from buying the low price bronze plan? right? It covers only the most cost-effective Medicare. Um, And then if I, uh, let's say I I then am diagnosed with this uh, bad form of cancer that we were hypothesizing before, and now I would like this million-dollar treatment that is only going to extend my life for a couple of months, uh, if that. And uh, so my bronze plan doesn't cover it, uh, but if I can, uh, assuming I don't uh, die from this cancer immediately, right, what's to stop me? for January 1st of next year, just switching to the platinum plan, right? Now that I have the illness, now I buy the platinum plan and then I get everything. And you're absolutely right that this, if this is possible, this would um, cause my proposal to unravel. So the only way to deal with this is to say that for a pre-existing condition, your insurance company only has to cover you up to the level that uh, you were covered at the time that you were diagnosed with that condition. Unlike the pre-existing exclusions that we were worried about for the Affordable Care Act, where uh, maybe if you had insurance, if you then came down with something you would and you lost your insurance, you wouldn't be able to, to, no one would sell you insurance. In this situation, since you're already in the system and you already have the bronze level insurance, you would still be covered for the bronze level insurance for everything. But you could not, uh, if you decided you wanted to upgrade to the Platinum plan, then you would not be covered at the Platinum level on your um, pre-existing conditions, only on new conditions.
0: And that was the Week in Health Law. A very big thank you to Professor Korupkin for joining us. Great to hear your contributions, Russell.
1: Thank you uh, both very much. I, you know, A couple of guys who, for your listeners, are not only excellent uh, health law scholars, but a uh, couple of the very good guys in the law professor business. So uh, I really appreciate you inviting me on. Well, thanks.
0: Yeah, thank you. We post our show notes at tool.com You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, where are you hanging out on social media this week? Health PI or at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.